So take us there, Skitch. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the Pie Factory Podcast. Um, hi folks. Um, I'm speaking in a hushed tone because we have a special episode coming up. And um, this special episode consists of an interview with Jeff Lee. Who is Jeff Lee? Well, keep on listening and you will find out. Jeff's audio is sourced through Skype, so it's going to be kind of digitally distorted here and there. But uh, our wonderful producer, Hyde St. Pierre, has done his best to make sure that it'll sound listenable. Since it's Jimmy G's turn to host this week, he will be asking most of the questions. So, ladies, gentlemen, and other, we proudly present Pie Factory Podcast, Episode 60. Hey everybody, Jimmy G here, and with me as always is Sean. Party on, Sean. Party on, uh, Jimmy G. And we have an extra special guest, and I'm not lying when I say extra special. Normally I am lying when I say extra special, but not today. Today I'm actually telling the truth. Today we have with us... On Skype is Jeff Lee. Welcome, Jeff Lee. Thank you, Jim G and Sean. I bet you say that all your guests are special, extra special, but uh, I'll go with that accolade. Thank you very much. You're very kind. Well, when our guests are extra special, we're not lying. And (laughs) we're not lying this time. Um, As with uh, many other uh, famous developers in the Chicago area, I have uh, partially been responsible for some of this man's income. <laughs> With all the tokens I've popped in Qbert machines over the yep, years. Me too. Well, well unless, uh, unless those tokens were popped in the early 80s. <laughs> I, I didn't see any That of is it. true. <laughs> but thank you. I, I, I know you guys have purchased some prints in the last few years, so... Uh, yeah, I love that one with uh, with Kubert uh, sitting on the toilet. That one's awesome, and I got it sitting here somewhere, and if I had a camera, I would show everybody. Actually, I do have a camera, I just have it turned off for performance reasons. I have reasons. it framed. Yeah. You have it framed? <laughs> I'm going to ha- take a picture of it framed right now and put it in the... Uh, I will link it in the show notes. There you go. So, uh, Jeff, tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do. We'll start there. We, we have some questions and stuff later on, but uh, we'll start there. Okay, I'm, uh, I'm an artist. My claim to fame, of course, is Qbert, uh, you know, back in the golden age of arcade video games. I don't think I had any fame back then, but I'm sure of it. And I don't know that I have much fame uh, these days, except among a very, very thin demographic <laughs> Of uh, mostly guys that were, they're probably in their 40s now, uh, for the most part, <laughs> and uh, they were the ones pumping all those quarters into the machines, uh, you know, back in the early 80s. And now you're on an award-winning podcast. Oh, awesome. That is true. We did win an award. We won an award. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, which is more than I've ever won. So uh, I am honored to be here. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> you don't have to lie. <laughs> I did. So I'm just going down a list here of different things that you've done. First of all, everybody that's been in the arcade knows that, well, knows the game Qbert. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Qbert and how that, uh, how that came to be? Okay, uh, this story's been told before, and it's probably changed and improved <laughs> over time. I, I know there's different versions of it, uh, depending on if it's Warren telling the story or me telling the story, but I'll, I'll tell my version. From the time I was in college, 
which was like in the early 70s. I became acquainted with the works of M.C. Escher, you know, the great Dutch artist, oh, yes. printmaker, and uh, was fascinated by uh, the triad and, you know, how that man made these wonderful illusions and prints. And uh, that was something that really captured my imagination. And uh, so, you know, there was a period in the 70s when uh, I was... Oh, working a bunch of grungy jobs and, you know, trying to break into the art business. But I would amuse myself by, you know, making all sorts of drawings and filling sketchbooks. And, you know, I worked with a lot of these geometric themes. And uh, so by the late 70s, I was managing a uh, an art department at a community college, Triton College, over here in River Grove. And... Uh-huh. Uh, we produced graphics for the faculty and staff, and it was a great gig. Uh, we had all kinds of tools at our command. This was the days before PCs. Everything was done, you know, mechanically or with photos. Desktop machines were just starting to happen around that time. And a friend of mine, Richard Tracy, who I'd known for a few years through friends, we used to jam together. He plays piano and guitar, and I play guitar and mandolin. And So we used to hang out and party quite a bit. Uh, he was working at Gottlieb Pinball, Gottlieb Amusement Games in Northlake uh, as their art director. And they were starting a video games division. This was in 81, summer of 81. And uh, he contacted me because he knew I was a gamer. Although I was playing a few video games, you know, some of the bars. And um, there weren't really too many arcades I knew of, but there was a golf course nearby that had a little few machines in there. Where I first saw where sure. I first saw the work of Tim Skelly actually, and um, oh. but I was like a war gamer, and um, I played Dungeons and Dragons and still do with you know <laughs> friends of mine and other the great Avalon Hill games and you know other games of that ilk as well as more traditional games that most people of that era were familiar with you know the Parker Brother games and you know Monopoly and Risk and stuff like that so I still love those kind of games. And like I say, the D&D, was, in fact, I'm running a campaign now. I have been for a few months with some friends and other people I've met online. Uh, we have a weekly thing going where we test out Skype, for instance, with a group call. At any rate, Richard knew I was a gamer, so uh, he thought of me when they needed an artist to produce, uh, you know, graphics for their upcoming projects. And uh, I thought, great, it sounded wonderful, a dream job, you know. Heading up this graphic department was a nice job, but this was sounded perfect, you know, and it was. It was, it was great. So the, the first project I had uh, land on my plate was uh, a pin video hybrid called uh, Caveman. I don't know if you guys have seen that or not. I remember seeing a, an article in a magazine about it, but I don't think I've ever seen that, an actual one of those machines. Yeah, well, they're pretty rare. Uh, they have one at Star Worlds out in DeKalb. Oh, really? Which is the only one... I was one. out there recently, and I did not see it. Well, maybe, maybe they've taken it out of rotation, but... Uh, they may have, because the, the actual arcade there is, is actually pretty small, but he, from what I gathered, talking to... Um, oh, gosh, the guy's name... Patrick O'Malley? Patrick, Patrick O'Malley, thank you. Yeah. It sounds like he does actually have a lot of games. He just doesn't have the space to do to oh, display yeah. what he would I like think, to. I think the figure they mentioned to me once is like 600 machines... Uh, all told, it's maybe more or who knows how many, actually. Wow. But uh, a lot of games in storage. You know, they have other locations 
uh, they supply machines for. They they got a route that they him and Glenn um, <laughs> supply for, and Glenn does a lot of the uh, almost all the repairs, etc. So anyway, they have a caveman or had one, had one on the floor. And boy, I hadn't seen that game like you know in over thirty years. Um, and uh, cave, caveman was a traditional pinball in many ways, but up at the top was a uh, you know near the uh, the back glass was a small monitor, and in between the flippers on top was a joystick. And at some point, your ball got captured, and you went into video mode, and uh, you played the caveman. It was basically a Pac-Man sort of game. You moved around a maze, and uh, you're either bashing dinosaurs and giant mammals, or uh, they were chasing you, depending on the situation. Yeah, I was going to say, Jim, you did see it. It was called Baby Pac-Man. <laughs> Better that, that better that than Granny at the yeah, Granny and the Gator. Yeah. <laughs> Baby Pac-Man, that, that was another was that another pin video? Yep. Yeah, the, yeah. Granny and the Gator, yeah, it yeah. came out at the same time as, as Baby Pac-Man. And I never heard of it until I saw it at Star Worlds uh last month, actually. And that that's just a terrible game. <laughs> I'm I'm sorry. But Well, I don't know. I can't say how great a game uh, Caveman was. Uh our boss hated it. Howie Rubin was the head of our division. Uh, he was a former Atari executive who had uh, had been tapped to start up Gottlieb's uh, video effort. Gottlieb was owned by Columbia Pictures, who in turn was owned by Coca-Cola. They had attempted a couple licensed properties before Howie was hired and you know brought on the crew, including myself. Uh, one was called New York, New York. Ah, yes. Mm -hmm. I've played that. That's an interesting shooter. Yeah, and the other one... Ooh, I'm blanking on it. Somewhere in my memoir, I've got notes on that. But neither of those did very well. So anyway, they thought they would, you know, golly, would make original games. And Caveman was first. Like I say, Howie hated it. Uh, he didn't <laughs> want to release it, but uh, he was kind of in a power struggle with uh, a guy named Gil Pollock who was, uh, had worked his way up through the ranks at Gottlieb, and he was kind of the head of the pinball side of things. So there was, there was a lot of competition between the two departments, even though we were supposed to leave one entity. But that was kind of reinforced by the physical situation. Gottlieb's headquarters was in North Lake, on Lake Street. And in fact, I used to, when I was in college, I worked for a company that was across the street from that. Uh, summer job it was a uh, construction supply company, and I would load and unload trucks and do these uh, much more distasteful tasks. Uh, and I remember Gottlieb being across the street, and didn't mean much to me in those days. So anyway, they had a second plant in Bensonville, a big industrial park off off of uh, Route 83, and I had also been in that industrial park. One of my jobs out of college was. Uh, working for a bunch of hillbillies uh, who are tuck pointers and brick cleaners. And I remember being on a site, and I think it was actually adjacent to what was the uh, Gottlieb building. And we were tuck pointing the, uh, the seams in this big concrete structure. So, yeah, it was, it was kind of weird later thinking about it. I was like, oh, yeah, I kind of noticed here. I was here before, but 
I guess that happens. I've lived around Chicago almost all my life, so there's <laughs> anytime I go to someplace new, it's there's a chance I've been nearby it, uh, for one reason or another. Anyway, Caveman. That was actually written up in some of the trade journals at the time, and maybe that's the article you saw. It was like an old replay article from like 1981. I don't know hard, how hardcore you are if you're reading stuff that old. I actually got a copy somewhere around here of uh, Replay Magazine. One of my first jobs was actually working for a little company called Rockdale Controls. They were based in Joliet. And um, one of the things that they made, although I never saw them, was uh, components for like bill changers. And I was in the, the back storeroom where they kept a lot of their miscellaneous junk and I found a copy of Replay Magazine there. It was a special AMOA um, show uh, edition of the magazine. I can't remember what year. I do remember that the game on the cover was The Amazing Adventures of Mr. F. Lee. Any relation? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, L-E-A, so no, no relation. hmm. And I remember seeing in there an ad about Qbert, a full-page Qbert ad. And the ad wasn't, like, brilliant like color wise or whatever it was just a simple looked uh fairly inexpensive ad uh that's my nice way of saying cheap <laughs> but it was it was uh, it showed cubert on the top of a pile of coins and it was uh talking about uh how cubert will increase your profits and stuff yeah, like that i, and, I, I think um, i have that flyer somewhere yeah i think that I can't would locate the magazine yeah, i still that, have it i know that that would have come to the art department and richard probably brainstormed it and handed it off to uh, Terry, his brother-in-law, who also worked there. Uh, Terry did, well, a lot of pinball art, but he also typically handled the duties uh, for the cabinet art uh, for the video games. So, like, the Cubert cabinet art was all done by Terry Dorzaff. Anyway, yeah, there, there had been an article in Replay or one of those magazines where they talked about Gottlieb's video evolution, and it was all about caveman and uh, the startup of our little section and uh, it mentioned the people who worked on the game which was you know Jim Weiss um, who was a hardware designer to a certain degree but mostly he wrote the utilities uh, that we use as tools and a guy named Joel Krieger uh, who was quite a interesting character and uh, Frank Starshack who was he was like a middle manager oversaw the programmers, and myself. We were all mentioned by name, which something which disappeared later on when Cubert came along and people wanted to interview us. We had to, much to our annoyance, uh, Warren Davis, David Thiel, and I were interviewed for one of the consumer video magazines, and we all had to use pseudonyms. So um, that really rankled no. Yeah, that really rankled us. So what do you remember what your pseudonym was? Was it like designer or something? It was. Yeah. Warren, Warren was designer, and I was <laughs> I was artiste, art like initial That's art, right. artiste. Uh. And uh, for some reason, they called they called uh, David Dale J. Walkman. <laughs> I'm not sure where the J came from, but I got to ask you about another potential pseudonym later on. Okay, so. Uh, Anyway, that was the first game I worked on, and then um, there were a couple other projects. I worked on a superhero game programmed by Tom Malinowski, which went through a bunch of names. It was called Video Man, it was called Protector, it was called Guardian, it was called Argus. And it went through a lot of changes. It 
was put out on test. It was brought back and Tom worked on more. Warren had been hired about that time and he was actually brought on to help assist Tom with the, the superhero game. And, uh, you guys probably know at the Galloping Ghost, uh, sometime last year, they put together a prototype of that. Yes, and I am absolutely terrible at it. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm not too good at it either myself. But. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of buggy at times. There, there's some difficulties with the, uh, hardware. It's a trackball game. And sometimes the trackball is just not working all that well. You get stuck and you can only move like, horizontally but you know it, it's probably the only copy in the world unless someone's got one of the actual original prototypes that were built back in the day some secret collector who's got a vault underneath the rocky mountains or something um so maybe he's got a one that works better but uh it's amazing what happens in the collecting field i mean you especially say like with the atari 2600 i mean you think there was like maybe a game announced that Atari was going to come out with or whatever, and it never came out. But yet, then you find some collector somewhere you'd never heard of. You know, some town you never heard of. Back in the barn, somebody's got like a dozen of these things sitting back there. So, does that happen often with uh, the cartridges? You'd be amazed. Yeah, you would definitely be amazed. Sometimes stuff comes up in yard sales, sometimes in estate sales. People don't realize or understand what they got and um how they how do they get the prototypes but i mean that does make sense because the godly video effort did not amount to a, a whole lot of games compared to like what midway put out or atari or williams mm-hmm. you know there was a half a dozen or so right maybe maybe a few more than that but for every game that was not released there was one or two that was developed either like to completion in a number of cases, or only partially, because that's how it was. You know, developers worked on a bunch of games knowing that only a few were going to make it. Um, mm-hmm. But they wanted something because they had to keep the uh, the factory working. Right. Because that was the deal. These companies then had this huge overhead of uh, large factories, hundreds of workers. They were tied into distribution systems and um there were usually corporate overlords who had a lot of money riding on it so you had to uh produce some product and um you had to keep things uh moving along it was uh, a tough business there was a lot of money to be made but you know the video at that time was kind of riding on a bubble you know uh mm-hmm. And that's like when Gottlieb got into it as the bubble was growing and it, you know, peaked not long after. It was a very short era for, at least for, as far as Gottlieb went. But, you know, they were getting killed on the pinball because pinball had been the dominant coin drop, mm-hmm. you know, the lifeblood for these companies for many years. They didn't have that many gambling machines at that point, but it was pinball. And Gottlieb's pinball, much of it was exported to Europe. France, in particular, was was their large. I think their largest market. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Maybe it might even been larger than uh, United States. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. Not that they ever produced any marquee art <laughs> or back glass or playfield art that was in French. 
it never was. It was like cultural imperialism at its, its greatest. You know, no apology. It was all in English. It's kind of a kind of amazing to think about. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of those games went uh, went to Europe. They still might be there. Who knows? Hmm. So yeah. So the superhero game was the next one I worked on, and then then there were a couple other little games. By that time, they had a half a dozen programmers and one artist to do the graphics <laughs> for the games, and that was me. And that was all, really all that was needed. It took so much time for them to program a game, and the monographics that were available in terms of memory and you know other aspects was so small, and one artist could easily handle it. It was not an issue. So that's why I had this unique opportunity or nearly unique, I guess, to be the guy there at the beginning, making the art for this effort. And um, so I worked on Mad Planets with for Khan Yabumoto, for Crawl, uh, uh, Crawl, which was by Matt Householder and uh, Chris Krubel. Uh, and I might just interject here that both Kroll and Mad Planets are highly underrated games. I love them. I love oh, them yeah. both, personally. Yeah. Well, I think Mad Planets, I mean, it, may, it of course, didn't sell as much as it probably deserved, but uh, pretty highly regarded game, I think. Back then, you know, it was reviewed well, and over the years, it's it's gotten uh, accolades rightly deserved, you know? Crawl, I think, I have a very hard time with that. That's really a tough game, and I'm not completely <laughs> happy with my graphics on that, but... Well, I have to say, on... <laughs> This is kind of our style. We keep interrupting each other. It's okay. Just the way we are. Um, but I, I have to say, it's a with bad Kroll, habit we're trying to break. Yeah, um, I have to say with Kroll. I was waiting for you to interrupt again. Um, I have to say with Kroll, um, I really like the graphics on it. I especially loved on the first screen the way that the boulders rolling down the hill look. I think that was kind of an amazing effect, and it uh, it, it it had a bit of a three D uh, look to it. And I just, I just totally enjoyed. It was, it was a pretty colorful game, given the theme in the movie it was based on. I'd have, I have to say. Uh, yeah, you know, I saw the movie once. I, I don't think you can even see that movie. It's, I don't think it's available. But I'm guessing it was probably very, uh, very dark, very gray, very moody. And yeah, the game itself is pretty bright. There's a lot of orange in it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I absolutely love the game. In fact, earlier in the year, we were invited to a friend's house for a video game party he had. He, he's up by uh, Underground Retrocade. And uh, he, uh, was that uh, one of our patrons? Yes, it was. One of your sponsors. Uh, yes. he, uh, <laughs> one of our sponsors. So I get over there, and I walk into his basement. I, I was excited because he has a full Kroll machine in his basement that he, he converted it into a main cabinet, but it was still really awesome to see that. And yes, he did have crawl <laughs> available as one of the games to play. And uh, I just, I was definitely in awe of that because I, I just love that game. I, I know a lot of people didn't really were maybe lukewarm toward it. I don't think anyone actually really hated the game, but I enjoyed the heck out of that game. It was, it is one of my favorites. Yeah. Well, one thing about Crawl is it's a better game than it was a movie, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even the Atari 2600 version of Crawl, which is nothing like the arcade, is better than the movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. I read this comic book uh, called Nights at the Dinner Table. It's it, it's a D&D &D thing, you know. It, it's, it's about these role <laughs> players who 
in Muncie, Indiana, and they Thursday night every Thursday night they get together and play their games, and you know, they got the guys built this whole mythology around the thing because it's been going on for like thirty years. You know, so there's a great cast of characters, all this human interaction, these these game nerds, and one of the elements is uh, Weird Pete, who is the owner of the Games Pit, and that's like the local friendly game store, um, and he's always on the brink of going out of business. And driving hard bargains with his customers, trying to move project and stuff. But there was this one episode where the guy, Jolly Blackburn, is the writer and artist. And he's a terrible artist. I mean, he's the first to admit that. It's just terribly drawn. And he uses the same artwork over and over. He just repeats it. It's Because it, it's all about the story and the dialogue. Uh, and he will mm-hmm. paste in stuff now and again. And there, in one of the episodes, was pasted in a crawl machine outside of this room where these guys are gaming. And it, it nice. fit in with, I know, the the deep background of what's going on with all these players because they love these, like, bad fantasy and science fiction movies. So um, I think The Crawl Machine was there as a tribute to uh, bad movies. Nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway, we, uh, I guess we kind of segued again. Yeah. Okay, so I... There I was working on these various games at the beck and call of the programmers. And, of course, I had ideas for uh, game designs as well. But the way it worked at Gottlieb was the programmer was the game designer as well. They just took it for granted if you wanted to work for them as a game programmer, you had a game idea. And, um, you know, sometimes it worked, sometimes not so well. But that's the way it was. So since I wasn't really a programmer... Any game ideas I had would hadn't been picked up by a willing programmer. And uh, I've got a pile of them. In fact, we're kind of looking at some of them these days as maybe doing like a retro thing. And here's like a game that was never done. So there's, you know, a handful of those. And some of them aren't actually probably that good, actually. But Or it's like, okay, this has since been done, (laughs) you know, dozens of times. Probably better, you know. But I was messing around also with my graphic tools. And like I said earlier, I was a fan of Escher and the triads and, you know, those kind of cubes, the cubes we know from Cubert. And that's what I did one day, was put up a bunch of that shape, those periodic shapes, filled up a screen with them. We had two systems, two hardware systems that were available uh, that all the programmers had to share. And one of them was at one of the building where uh, Tim Skelly, who uh, did a reactor for us, he did uh, Star Castle and Rip Off and you know, a bunch of games for Cinematronics, uh, he was like the star programmer. He was there as an independent contractor. He had a contract to deliver three games for Gottlieb. And he had all these privileges that no one else did. He was like the first guy to get his name credited on the... Uh, in a game. I think the first ever for any company. But he had that kind of credibility because he had, you know, he had the experience and he had delivered, you know, some hits. Uh, Mm -hmm. So he had one of the the machines was his, one of the development stations because he was working on Reactor at the time. And the other one, everyone else just kind of had to share. And I know Khan Yabamoto, who was, you know, Mad Planet's guy, was in, we're all kind of in a common room in the Bensonville plant. At least... There were two common rooms and uh, one development station in each one. So I had access to it, and I was able to put up 
like I say, all these cubes, that, that kind of pattern. And then I thought, well, it would look cool as a pyramid. So I redid some of those background sprites so I could build a pyramid. And the story is more complicated than that, but basically that's how I remember it, and that's how I tell it. Now, Warren's story is a little different. but uh, <laughs> And you can interview him, you can do podcasts with him, and he will tell the story a little differently. But uh, <laughs> then once that pyramid was there, I thought, well, this could be a game if there was something hopping on it. So I wrote a game proposal. It's about six pages. Mostly it's drawings of the pyramid with a character on it with a big nose, and uh, he's standing on top of things, and on some of the things, and some of the times he's on the side because in the original proposal, he could change planes. He could exist in different dimensions, you know. And uh, then he's dealing with enemies, and I had him sh- shooting, using his nose as a gun, you know. he was. That's why one of the games had been snots and boogers at one point. It's a booger snot, that's for sure. Although that was never incorporated into the game. So that's kind of where it was. I had this proposal, I had this art. Then Warren came along and he saw this and said, hey, I'd like to take this and uh, just practice with it. He, he was learning some of the fundamentals of uh, physics, I guess, for, for gameplay. <laughs> okay? So it, it was an exercise for him. The way he tells it is he asked, oh, did I have any characters to go with that? Well, of course I did, because I already had this proposal. But anyway, like I say, he remembers it a little differently. The upshot is, though, that whatever I had cobbled together, he then took it to mess around with it. And people got kind of excited about it. They thought it had possibilities. It gradually started coming together as a game. People would drop in ideas. Originally, what Warren was doing was just dropping the balls, like the red balls, onto the pyramid and having them bounce. And it was a binary decision, right? It goes right. So it goes Warren left. dropped the ball, huh? Yes, he dropped the ball. But in <laughs> dropping the ball, he did not drop the ball. So is that Ooh, is that tricky. like Zen or something like that? I don't know. <laughs> I think so, Jeff. <laughs> there is no spoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, once Cubert's hopping around, avoiding the balls, and then uh, our uh, the famous moment where it all clicked for us, uh, the credit goes to Ron Waxman, who was uh, the VP of engineering. And Ron had been hired at the same time as Howie, and Howie tells a long story about it, but I won't go into that, but Ron was like a real character. He, he had come from the uh, defense industry. He was like a brilliant electrical engineer. He was a Kind of a gruff fellow with a very dry sense of humor, but like a heart of gold, you know? And uh, mm-hmm. he was this short, very obese Jewish guy, uh, heavy-lidded eyes and a beard. He smoked these big cigars, and uh, <laughs> yeah, he, he was something. He, everyone loved Ron. And he had the habit of coming in. A lot of these guys worked pretty late hours. I typically did not, but... Ron also did, and he would come in and just kind of plop himself down behind these programmers and not say nothing, just watch them what they're doing. And <laughs> some you know, made some of them nervous, and I guess some of them just went with that flow. But at one point, Ron says to uh, Warren, What about if when he lands on the top of a cube, it changes color? And boom, that was like the turning point. At that point, we really had a game. So my point always is, regardless of how some of us may remember events, it 
it definitely was a group effort. It was it was a team effort. Mm-hmm. You know, David Thiel did the sounds, his sounds, and his experiments, his, his frustration with the the Votrex chip uh, led to the gibberish that you know became Kubert's uh, little dialect, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which led led to the uh, you know the swear balloon. <laughs> You know, that all grew out of that. One thing fed off another or inspired another thing. And uh, there was a, a, a tech guy named Rick Ty. He just was around in that building a lot. I'm not sure what his real job was, but uh, he might have helped assemble the cabinets, you know, the prototypes and all that. Kind of a troubleshooter. He wasn't a programmer or anything, but uh, he came up with the idea of the, um, the thumper. Oh yeah, that the piece of like pin, solenoid pin, or that, whatever. Yeah, the solenoid that you know hardware uh, hardware from pinball. As when Cubert yeah, fell off and hit the bottom, that was that was that was Rick's idea. So Warren and many uh, arcade operators in later days uh, disabled those things, which I think took a little bit away from the game. Unfortunately, yeah. that was always fun to hear. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. You, you didn't you didn't just hear it either, too, though. You felt it, and that was. An unusual experience for a video game. Yeah. Yeah, when I was a nine-year-old, I was wondering, man, that bass is so thick you can feel it. But it wasn't a bass at all. It was the, it was mechanical. Yeah. I think originally, I understand, they were going to have um, some kind of cushion between the solenoid and whatever it was that it hit to kind of soften it, make it more of a thud than a thunk. If, if my terminology is right, I think a thud is uh, kind of a softer sound, right? But it created... Like an extra step on the assembly line, so they didn't do it and just went with the thunk, which is harder, kind of harder edged. But that's probably more why you felt it, though, because uh, it mm-hmm. had no cushion there. So, uh, yeah, a lot of people working on something. It went relatively quickly uh, compared to the usual gestation period of the, these sort of games. I think pretty much Warren did all the programming on it. And, um, yeah. It was a, a delight for me to animate the characters. You know, I designed all the characters and gave them some of the names. I did not coin Cubert. That was a result of a, uh, a meeting. Because at that point, when the game went on test, and you guys have probably seen those marquees with the swear balloon, right? Oh, yeah. That's how it went out on test. And some of us really loved that idea. It was my idea originally. And Howie Rubin, our boss, he thought it was great just because it was... Kind of crazy thing to do, you know? But then saner heads, I guess, <laughs> overruled them. Says, well, how are people going to tell us the game they want to order? How can people, what will they say? It needs a name. So we had to have a, a meeting to come up with a name. And we generated a long list of names and winnowed them through. And uh, Richard Tracy had, one of the name was Hubert for some reason. And... Uh, <laughs> Somehow that morphed into Cubert, but it was spelled like C-U-B-E-R-T. And I think Ron Waxman supposedly said, well, that's no good because people can pronounce it Cubert instead of Cubert. So that's when we went with the Q with the asterisk, B-E-R-T. So that's how that came about. That was completely teamwork or groupthink or something like that. One thing I, I got to ask you about, Jeff, is uh, the characters in Q, those are all your design, right? Yes. Yes. And uh, I've seen some of your other work, like, like for example, the uh, 
the mascot you designed for Pixel Blast and some of the samples on your website. Well, wait, I, I, have didn't, kind I didn't of a... design Pixel Glass mascot. That, they, came oh, up, really? they came up with that themselves, yeah. I did that painting for them with Cubert uh, okay. blowing that little Pixel Blast character out of his nose, but that's their, actually their... Yeah, we were there when you uh, when you were actually painting that. Oh yeah, and, right, um, right, yeah. But no, no, that yeah. was that was Terry or Paul or I don't know, maybe Christine. Okay, I, I'm not sure who designed that little critter for them. But uh, anyway, does that blow up your question, Jim? <laughs> no. <Nope>. But uh, <laughs> what I was going to say was, uh, it, it seems that the ones that you do design, they all have kind of a similar vibe. And is there any artist in particular that was kind of an influence on in how you designed your characters? Well, I was a great reader of comic books and comic strips as a kid. And Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, makes so, sense. you know, Mad Magazine and and all of that. So I, when I was a kid, I was drawing all sorts of people and creatures and stuff. And as much as I would like to say I had like a little furry guy back then, I had some guys that were maybe close, but... Um, not quite like Hubert. So, you know, he was general. That was like an original d- design generated for that game. But, uh, yeah, I used to draw, I had a bunch of drawings of like these. They were like a Bonneville Snowman guy. So they're kind of hmm. round kind of guys, sort of, sort of like Hubert, but they had kind of bulbous noses and, uh, yeah, they kind of made the same kind of feet, but they had arms and stuff. So, I used to draw a lot of stuff like that. Um, I mean, I think more in when I started working in this field, I probably generated a lot more stuff like that. All kinds of characters. I mean, like probably I've drawn thousands probably of characters that just as doodles, you know, over the years. Uh, but probably Cubert, yeah, was original to that time. And then his the other characters in the game, yeah, I guess they kind of all look part and parcel with that. Because you want some kind of unity for a particular game. So, um, yeah. I, you know, to say what cartoonist would have influenced me most, it's tough. I used to, like, copy a lot of, like, Peanuts, you know, uh, Snoopy and all that kind of stuff when I was a kid. And um, I liked another comic strip, Andy Cap. I don't know if you remember that guy or not. Oh, yeah. Uh, he, he, oh, yeah. Uh, today, it'd be, that guy would be completely politically incorrect. I don't know that it strip still exists. Oh, big time. Uh, but, you know, oh, yeah. drinker, smoker, a wife beater and stuff, I and mean, he was awful. But I used to collect those comic strips, and um, yeah, I was completely immersed in comic characters as a kid, and uh, yeah, like I say, drew a lot of them. And, but not till later, much later in life did I produce large amounts of them. So, did I answer that question uh, to your satisfaction? Uh, big time. Okay. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> It was probably verbose. (laughs) You'll take care of it in the editing. Yeah. So, we have some questions. Ooh, do tell. And I'm going to pick what I think is the most interesting one first. I didn't write any of these, so, you know, that's why there are ones on this list that are actually interesting. So, So where did they come from? They came from Sean. Actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, all but one. All and, but yeah, one. W- one comes from uh, from uh, a friend, actually. Actually, I'm going to ask that one first. Uh, this is from <laughs> one of our uh, listeners, uh, Tim Van- Vanderkolk. Tim Vanderkolk. You, uh, Jeff, you may or may not have the authority to answer this, but just in case, we probably should. Okay. 
uh, he asks, and he, there's actually a follow-up question to this one that I think is is Sean's follow-up, but Tim asks, Indeed. was it your intent to make Mad Planets a game that would wreck both my hand and my brain at the same time? Um... Uh... I would not be authorized to do that because I merely did the artwork. I had nothing to do with the game design. So all the, okay, all that's the, all the blame uh, rests with the late Dr. Khan Yabumoto. Hmm. Yes. Then that would have been his intent. <laughs> and there's a, the, the follow-up. Uh, what are your thoughts on 11-year-old Austin Swan uh, recently getting the world record on Mad Planets? Yeah, 30-some-year-old game and a current 11-year-old. Well, he's 12 now, but... Actually, that same kid just got the Galloping Ghost all-time high score on Sinistar. Well... I'm not mistaken. You know, that is an amazing phenomenon. We can get into a discussion of marathon and record players. Uh, I mean, record-seeking <laughs> record players. Record-seeking players. But, you know, it's like analogous to maybe... Oh, like if some 11 or 16-year-old kid joined the Rolling Stones and all of a sudden they started producing hit records again based on this kid. You know, that, that's, I think, a good compare. Well, maybe not a great comparison, but it's kind of something <laughs> like that, you know? It's, or like a, a 20-year-old joining a Cheap Trick. Oh, wait a minute, that happened. Oh, did that happen? <laughs> Are they relevant? Yeah, their drummer and their lead singer got into a spat over a, a residency in Vegas, and so the lead singer's son is the drummer for the group. Yeah. So, but if, if this, like, young person, this this upstart, elevated them to uh, new heights, I mean, it's not quite the same thing, because it's obviously Austin is not doing anything creative with his marathon uh, skills here. Who knows? Maybe someday, though, he'll uh, do some game design. Then it uh, would be a be- better... Uh, metaphor or uh mm-hmm. well i'm sure there's been a lot of people that were playing like asteroids or cubert or whatever way back when that are now you know doing stuff like i'm so out of modern gaming i can't think of a, a like call of duty maybe or something like that yeah well i would so, hope so so yeah. i mean there's definitely an influence there yeah um, you, know, you know there is you know at the last uh midwest gaming classic you know we had we had a table right on the other side of the wall from you guys. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of uh, folks moseyed by, and we were talking to this one dude who, uh, he says, someone who works for your company influenced my life. And he came into our school, my junior high, and he brought one of your games in with him. And I forget which game it was. And he gave a demonstration and a talk, and at that moment I was inspired to become a programmer or software engineer, and that's what I've done with my life. And I don't think the guy is doing games necessarily, but uh, there probably are guys like that. Probably most of the game programmers had that kind of moment in their youth, and it might have been with uh, you know, a, a home console, probably in many cases. Um, but some of them, yeah, with arcade pieces. And, and we actually did identify who that was. That employee was uh, that middle, mid uh, level manager I mentioned, Frank Starshack. Mm-hmm. We were able to, you know, he gave me a physical description. We thought, well, it can only be this guy. It's got to be Frank. So. Uh, so that was cool. Yeah. So Frank inspired some guy. That's, that is so cool. Obviously, you're an artist. You have background in art. You were saying that uh, M.C. Escher's huge influence. You enjoyed uh, enjoyed his artwork. And before, I, and I have to mention, uh, there was a, a 
a game for the ColecoVision called Illusions, which used uh, kind of sort of like M.C. Escher type artwork in the gameplay, but it was a absolutely terrible, horrible game. So, you know, less said about that, the better. But um, now you've done uh, public art too, correct? I'm, I'm doing some public art right now. Back today I was uh, working on it. Yeah, I've, uh, I've been uh, honored to have been chosen a number of times over the last six years to uh, paint some murals in uh, Oak Park. My wife and I lived in Oak Park many years ago and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. our, raised our children there. And we moved away, you know, like, oh, 17 years ago, 18 years ago. But, you know, we still keep in contact with our friends there. And they started a program, the Oak Park Area Arts Council, of uh, what they call mini murals. There's, uh, if anyone's familiar with Oak Park, it's kind of bisected by several transportation lines. One is the uh, Northwestern Line. The commuter railroad. It's also the green line of the, yep. uh, of, the of the L, and uh, the viaduct is owned by Union Pacific, and it's just big, gigantic concrete structure spans the village from well end to end, from Harlem to Austin, and of course it goes beyond that in either direction. But in Oak Park, they worked out an agreement with Union Pacific to uh, allow artists to paint. In these sections, and there's like natural frames in the structure itself that just lend themselves like, oh, oh put a put a painting in there, mm-hmm. you know. And some of them, of course, got signs or parking meters coming out of them, and some of them are cracked and terrible condition. Got rats running out of them and stuff, and some are covered with <laughs> ivy. But uh, some of them, you know, you power wash them down, and you know they prime them up, and you get a, a surface anywhere, you know, typically six foot wide or eight to eleven feet tall. So um, I heard about this competition, this call for artists, so I sent in a design and told a buddy of mine about it, too. Uh, in fact, he's a guy who had done the uh, cabinet art for one of the licensed games we did back in the day called Juno First. Um, oh, love that game. That's a great game. Yeah, I know it has kind of a following. It does. Yeah. It, in fact, I think just recently the 10 Pence Arcade podcast in... The UK yeah, that just was, talked about that's that. That's their latest episode. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, yes. Mike had done the cabinet art. Uh, of course, the art the art of the game was done in Japan by who knows who. So anyway, Mike's done a number of murals there, and uh, I've done... Well, the ones I'm doing now are number eight and nine for me, so I'll have nine pieces. Oh, nice. Um, by the time I'm done. So, uh, yeah, it's cool. It's uh, it's a fun thing. It's it can get uh, kind of uncomfortable and blistering hot, depending on where you're at. And there's a lot mm-hmm. of oh yeah, it's a very physical thing. You're climbing up ladders and running back say, and forth across the street like- to uh, take a look at things, make sure stuff is looking right, and you're avoiding uh, cars and bugs and rats. I might add, yeah. and um, it's not like you're painting on a canvas in your studio. No, <laughs> no, it's uh, really a challenge working on rough concrete like that because uh, there's a definite texture thing and then there's holes mm-hmm. you know a little lot of imperfections in it and this year i got some extra challenges because the one <laughs> the one mural they've broken up the sidewalk uh oh no where i normally would be setting <laughs> up and it's a bunch of dirt that's all irregular and sloped and really hard and you know so i've set up a step stool or ladder and it's leaning at a precarious angle but anyway i'll get through it there's uh, 
I shouldn't complain. There are a lot of worse things. I'm just thrilled to be doing uh, some more public art. It's uh, it's a blast. If somebody should want to meander around Oak Park and see this artwork, is it obvious uh, which of it is yours? Like, did you sign it? Or It is signed, yes. You can look at the bottom okay. and you'll see my, uh, I think I signed them all, J.P. Lee. So, yeah, there's one. So you got that railroad track, that viaduct. And on the north side, that road's called North Boulevard, and the one on the south side is called South Boulevard. So I have one at North Boulevard, uh, just east of Harlem. It's called The Birth of Cool. I have one series. It's four different paintings, and they're all next to each other. It's the four seasons, but it's a depiction. I started out with a snowman, a snowman and a pumpkin man, and they're, like, throwing stuff at each other. The snowman's throwing snowballs at the pumpkin man. Pumpkin Man's, of course, in a different, an adjacent frame, and he's throwing pumpkin guts at Snowman, and then there's, you know, some crossover <laughs> of creatures in the two, and then I thought, well, I did two, but there's four seasons, so I managed to convince them, you know, the following <laughs> couple of years, took three years to get them all up there, so I added a spring piece that's a, uh, an egg man, a gigantic egg man, of course, throwing eggs at, uh, the summer guy who is a, a pile of balls, beach balls and volleyballs and stuff like that. So, Eggman, no walrus there? There is no walrus. <laughs> no, there's no walrus. The, uh, Sean sees what I did. I wasn't going to go there as <laughs> much I know as you I weren't. wanted to. The unifying theme, actually, in each, all four of them, besides the creature, which is three things stacked, throwing stuff, is uh, there's a rabbit in each one, and it's a different rabbit. Okay, I gotta ask. Okay, have you hidden any of your characters, like Qbert or Coily Slick or Sam, in any of them? No, I have not. Ah, <laughs> I was hoping you're doing like a whole Disney thing where they like sneak the mouse ears into everything. Yeah, no, no. Do they really do that? All over Disney World, they do that. Oh, yeah, okay. Disneyland too. I found a hidden Mickey when I was there last year. That sounds dirty. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have not done that. But the. Uh, Anza Kubert will uh, see sense something familiar about uh, one of the ones I'm working on now. Oh, because I'm using mm. uh, triad illusions on a wall. I'm painting a wall on the wall, and um, oh boy, I'm using that optical illusion thing. If you study it, you realize, oh wait a minute, these top and bottom, they're like should be the same, but now one thing's much taller, and then it gets smaller again. How can that be? But <laughs> um, so, yeah, that one is across from Public Works on South Boulevard. And then there, I've got a couple I did a few years back over near Austin Boulevard on South Boulevard. There's one called Sizzlin. It's a picture of a Cuban musician I saw down in Millennium Park some years back, and I had just drawn him in my sketchbook, and then I blew him up and added the title as a mural suggestion, and they took it. And then there's another one with a couple – a giant, it was Mother and Child Reunion, whatever. It's a gigantic – it's my niece and her daughter. And my niece's hand, she's holding her hand out, which is enormous in the mural. And then her little daughter's little baby fingers is hanging on to that. So, mm. yeah, Paul Simon influence in the title? Uh, I guess, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some people, there, there's a, a gender dichotomy going on there. When women look at it, their hearts melt because, oh, it's a mother and child. And it's heartwarming. When men look at it, they think of the pull my finger joke. <laughs> so, 
So there you have it, gentlemen, the difference between men and women. And, of course. Uh, <laughs> us, us men don't come out uh, smelling like roses, if I uh, make some sort of pun, if that is indeed a pun. Well, you did do the graphics for the, uh, for the Three Stooges games, so... Yeah, right. right. <laughs> okay, I gotta ask. You actually mentioned uh, the game Juno first, uh, one of the licensed games, I believe it was from Konami, that Gottlieb released in the United States. Now, someone recently did a homebrew version of that for the Atari 2600, which looks and play is really, really great. Um, it was just released a couple of years ago, actually, and uh, using the modern programming techniques, they were able to make it look almost exactly like the arcade game. It wow. was just amazing. put speech synthesis in it, too. Yes. <laughs> Now, somebody recently developed a uh, homebrew version of Qbert for the Atari 7800, which is the, I think, the only classic console it was never released on, called, uh, what is it, is it called? They call uh, it Bonk? Bonk. They call it Bonk. Okay, some people B like asterisk me. N capital Q. Hmm. And it's a, a near perfect copy of the arcade game. What are your feelings about independent homebrewers making these conversions to home systems, especially vintage systems for, say, consoles that the game never originally came out on, even though other consoles of the day had that particular game. So how do I feel about these homebrews? Well, you know, if I was actually making money from cured <laughs> games, I would have mixed feelings. <laughs> I suppose I'd feel I was getting ripped off, but I would be flattered that people liked that creation from so long ago. So, since I'm not making any money from any Cubert games, <laughs> I guess i got to go with the latter. I'm uh, flat <laughs> flattered that people like the game enough, remember it, that they uh, want to pay tribute. Isn't flatteries the... How's it go? Imitation, Imitation most, is the most sincere form of flattery. Form of so. flattery. Yeah. And what's interesting is when that homebrew was under development it had almost the same story that you told us about the cubert development and that the developer was just going to title it with the uh the swearing symbols and all that he said why don't i just do that and everybody's saying well we got to call it something how are you going to pronounce that <laughs> okay yeah 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 <laughs> so uh life imitates art yep or something. It's uh, as, I, <laughs> as I was saying. It's, it appears that the Atari seventy eight hundred was the only console of the day that did not get a port of Cubert. It was like pretty much everywhere, hmm. um, yeah. thanks to Parker Brothers. And eventually, Atari bought the rights to the game and re-released it on the Atari twenty six hundred. But a version was never created for the seventy eight hundred, and you know. There were obviously not great sales of that particular console. It's almost like Atari was like ashamed of it or something. But uh, as me and Sean will tell you, that's probably our favorite console of that particular era. Oh, really? And uh, we, oh, we love the heck out of it. And that's awesome that some people, as you were saying, you know, love the game so much that they want to bring it to more of an audience. And I'm sure a lot of the a lot of them would love to have you know the official rights to do the games and stuff like that. But you know they don't have the money and. You know, the major corporations just can't be bothered with doing something like that for peanuts. Yeah, most of the time they don't even respond. They're like, you know, whatever. Well, I think that Sony has, uh, you know, they own the Cuba rights, I guess. I don't know what they do with it. In terms of, you know, they, they, <laughs> they obviously have allowed Cuba into a few movies. And um, oh, yeah. I think, oh, I think actually Eugene Jarvis released a Cuba uh, Redemption type of game. 
as an arcade piece. I mean, I've never seen it. I've just seen pictures of it or you know online. So they're doing a minimal thing, but they're occasionally over the years they you know there were home versions when the company shut down. Uh, Ron Waxon, who I mentioned earlier, and uh, a couple of the other executives. John Von Leeson was one of them. He was the guy who was responsible for all that crazy marketing that went on. You know, they probably made more money from marketing Qbert than they did from actual sales of machines uh, with all the licensing. I mean, I don't know that for a fact, but I'm just guessing that that's the case. And there was another guy named Bill Jacobs. Anyway, they took the uh, laser disc technology that uh, our company had developed and became defense contractors again. And we're making flight simulators for the Navy. And for a period of time, in the uh, late 80s at least, Qbert products that were licensed to uh, you know, home consoles had something about JVW. That was the name of their company. So they were like, they obviously had gotten the rights to be the agent to do that. And nowadays, I think you'll see Sony's name. or No, or Columbia Pictures, actually. Probably the one you'll see as opposed to Sony. So... I think if given the opportunity for them to make money, they'll license it to whoever. I don't think they really care about the property, but if they can make money, they will. By the way, you mentioned Kubert uh, being in movies. I just, uh, as the day before we're recording this, uh, I actually saw the uh, the trailer for uh, Wreck It Ralph 2. And, oh, uh, really? Yeah, it's, it's a teaser trailer, and I didn't see any video game characters in it, but uh, the subtitle for it is uh, Ralph Breaks the Internet. Hmm. So we'll see what happens. Although I've heard that Kubert might have a larger role in the movie, and I heard that they reached some sort of deal with Mario to make him have a fairly decent-sized role in the movie, too. Oh. So we'll see what happens with that. Yeah, um, well, the first Wreck-It Ralph, I enjoyed that film. Um, it was great. It was very good. Yeah, I thought it was a, it was a good story. The way Kubert and his gang came off was perfect that made kind of derelicts <laughs> i thought that was great that was awesome uh the stuff with the felix character being able to speak cubertese or whatever i thought that was hilarious <laughs> so there was some there was stuff. a lot of fun easter yeah. eggs in that movie yeah there was, there was a lot of good stuff in that movie the movie was basically a video game version of who framed roger rabbit but it was just as well done i would say yeah so um i thought when I heard they were going to do a second one, I figured, well, that there probably wouldn't be any Qbert in it. They, you think they would go for cover some ground that they hadn't gone over before in terms of characters and all that. But if Qbert yeah, like Uncle Pooh cool. or something again, Uncle Pooh. <laughs> yeah, I got to admit, I'm I got I'm a little disgruntled. I know Warren is, and probably David as well, because you know we never get any acknowledgement from Sony or Columbia. You know, well, here's the guys that created Qbert. They're still around. <laughs> yeah, I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> you know that that totally sucks because it's uh, the movie company that's doing the uh, the Rampage movie. It seems like they're going out of their way to acknowledge uh, Brian Colin and company. Well, I think with, he, I with think, the film, I think Brian had something to do with that though. I think he injected himself, and rightfully so, by letting it be known that hey, I'm still here. Mm-hmm. You know, he had these, True. he had those film crew shirts made up, and uh, you know, he went around contacting people and stuff. Now, when, did you get one of the film crew shirts? I have not. I have not. Oh, uh, I haven't seen Brian <laughs> lately, but uh, yeah, who knows? Maybe one day that'll happen. It'll be more than I get from uh, Sony or Columbia Pictures, though. I'll tell you. Now, when the other one, Pixels, 
was in production. And I think there must have been some advance warning that Kubert was going to be in that one as well. Now, Warren Davis, programmer, co-creator, arbiter, final arbiter of uh, the Kubert game. He's, he's an actor. Um, hmm. Warren's passion is acting. Uh, he programs program games, a lot of games and other things over the years, but that's a way to make a living. He's much more interested in acting, and, and he was back in the day uh, here in Chicago. And he worked in amateur theater. When we did uh, Us versus Them, I don't know if you guys have played that. They got you know one over. I have played that. Yeah, I mean that's like a movie production, and it, I was it, impressed it, with the cutscenes in that. It's one. all c- completely cheesy, but it was deliberately cheesy. Right. Uh, and, but Warren was really involved in that, and he was like in his element with that. So he he. At some point, I think in the 90s, you know, we, we worked on several projects after Gottlieb went down flames. But then he moved out to Los Angeles to pursue an acting career. And he's, you know, had a lot of minor roles on TV shows and movies and stuff. Um, he, he still does uh, stage work and all that. Anyway, Pixels came out and he told his agent, you know, you should see if you get me a cameo or something in this movie. Because... Cuber's going to be in it, and I did Cuber, you know? And it never happened. Now we don't know whether it's the fault of the agent for not pursuing it, or they just blew him off. I don't know, but that is so wrong. That is so wrong wrong that Warren was not included in that. I understand that the creator of Pac-Man had a cameo in there, not not in the role as the creator of Pac-Man, but in a scene. That should have been made available to Warren, too. I, th- I think that's a terrible thing. But that's that's been all too typical of the way they've handled it. Yeah, we're, we're essentially non-entities. They probably don't even have any idea who we are, to tell you the truth. On that same topic, I'm just curious, like, how about uh, the Three Stooges in Brides is Brides? Uh, how much interaction did, uh, say, uh, I get, that, would, that would have been um, uh, Milestar, Millstar? Milestar, Milestar, right. How much uh, interaction did uh, they have with, say, the uh, the Howard estate, as it were, I guess? Well, everything had to be cleared through them, yes. Yeah. Uh, so shortly after I started working at Gottlieb, you know, like mentioned, we were owned by Columbia Pictures. Of course, as a kid, as a young male growing up in the 50s, 60s, I loved the Three Stooges. I thought, this is natural. A Three Stooges video game. This is perfect, and we're owned by the company that made the shorts. And I wrote up a proposal early on, you know, probably within the first six months that I was there. And nothing happened until a couple years later. Um, when Sam Russo... One Sam of our, and the Qbert game. Yes, who, Sam and Qbert's named after Sam Russo. Sam and I had worked on a quiz game called Quizimoto early on, which was a... Uh, <laughs> It was a strange beast. It was uh, done on an Apple computer to be in an Apple with the idea that you would sell the Apple computer <laughs> in, a, in a box to whoever wanted to buy it. We wanted a quiz game. And we made the theme like Quasimodo. It was a hunchback of Notre Dame. Quasimodo. And uh, I did some graphics. I actually did kind of detailed marquee graphics. The screen graphics were just black and white. It was like a two-step animation. It was like really cheesy. Uh, but there was hardly any memory for one thing. It was mostly all the text for the the trivia game. And uh, they sold the demo. 
the place where it was tested, the bar owner liked it so much, he, he bought that one machine, but they never manufactured it. So Sam noodled around with some other things, but then he uh, took up the gauntlet for, uh, or the challenge for Three Stooges. And uh, so we kind of co-designed that game. Then we had to deal with, when I say we, I should say Sam or the company, certainly not me, had to deal with the Howard Estate. Uh, it's actually Norman Maurer Productions. And Norman Maurer, M-A-U-R-E-R, is Moe's, or was Moe's son-in-law. He was the guy who everything had to go through him. They owned all the rights, as it turned out. It wasn't Columbia Pictures. So they were cooperative. You know, they were all for it. But they also decided that any the voices, because, you know, they had like speech synthesis, you know, for the Stooges and the other people, had to be done with their guys. They had their own talent, voice talent who did Moe, Larry, and Curly. And uh, mm-hmm. Sam could tell you in greater detail, he was at the like, recording session where they laid it all down onto tape. That game, unfortunately, uh, came out at a time as when everything was starting to tank. And the company was actually also more interested in selling their Laserdisc projects. So uh, there weren't very many machines of that uh, manufacture. It was a three-player game, you know. I don't know if it was one of the... Might have been one of the early three-player games. Are there other three-player games? I don't know. It's not the usual number, is it? Um, yeah, Xevious Xenophobe. And Rampage would be, would be three-player games. Those came out a couple of years later, of course. I think Rampart was also. So, uh, uh, yeah, anyway, they got, hey. one, they got one at the Gallium Ghost. They put it together. It's, yep. it's, it's not an original piece. It's pretty hard to find. They had to piece it together. And you would have thought that having that game up front in the TV show, What's Happening Now, in almost every episode, would have given it some better publicity. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, it's too bad. My regret about that game, in terms of the artwork, is we should have done it in black and white, like the old shorts. Oh, yeah. And uh, I... There was oh written, yeah. Mm-hmm. Then, there's a splash screen which uh, I think is in the final game as it exists now, but it's in color. They had me colorize it, but I originally did it in black and white. And back then, of course, we had no means of digitizing artwork from a camera, with the exception of the Laserdisc games, where there was video in the running in the background. The, all the sprites, foreground sprites, were all hand drawn, so to speak, right? You know, they're all drawn in the utility. We couldn't capture any screen art and digitize it. We just didn't have the technology for that. So I had, like, Polaroids. I shot off a TV screen of the Three Stooges. You know, at the beginning of the shorts, they're looking at you very coyly or weirdly, you know, then with with the uh, theme song going, et cetera. So I had these little photographs, and... um, I drew the whole damn thing out of uh, background sprites, 8x8 eight eight sprites. I was limited to 250, no, 128. We had 128 8x8 eight eight background sprites at any given time. And so I made that whole splash screen out of that, and I thought it turned out pretty damn good. That was probably one of my, what's the word I want? A tour de force. That was, for me, probably my tour de force was that black and white, three Stooges screen, 128 8x8 characters. And no one's ever seen it. Uh. Yeah. 
But that would have been so good in black and white. I don't know why we didn't do that. We it probably orders came from on high. Oh, you got to do it in color. I remember uh, hearing the story about when Mel Brooks did the movie Young Frankenstein. Uh, him and Gene Wilder wanted to keep it in black and white, but the movie studio kept insisting that they film it in color. But Mel Brooks and Gene Wilder were like, no, you cannot tell this story in color and they ultimately prevailed and the movie was all the better for being in black and white oh, I don't, I don't think absolutely yeah i don't think it would have been the same had they filmed it in color i don't know no but, well um, if, if they had that's what we'd be used to but the fact that it was in black and white was perfect you know and oh yeah and obviously they were right yeah indeed <laughs> great movie <laughs> oh awesome film i haven't watched it in a while I need to watch it again soon. One thing I was curious about was curveball because it wasn't very usual for baseball games to be in the arcades, like at least not since probably the seventies. Like, can you talk a little bit about that? How that came about? Towards the end of the uh, Gottlieb video area era, a couple guys came over from Midway, uh, a manager type a guy named Bill Adams and his protege a guy named Jim Love, and. Uh, that was their project, as far as I know. I'm not sure if anyone else kicked in on that. You guys know Dennis Nordman? No. no. He was a uh, a game and toy designer that worked for us at that time. I'm not sure where he had been previous to that, but he's been in the industry ever since. And if you, he works for uh, Stern now, doing pins. And I actually am not sure if he's full-time, but you remember seeing that MGC a couple years ago, that pin it was uh it was like a throwback to the old lusty pinball games it was like big juicy melons was the name of it i think <laughs> you remember, I, I, I remember, remember seeing that one you yes. ever seen that yes, game and, remember and, seen and, that. and a cab had a specialty cabinet cabinet was like fruit crates and that is a dennis nordman game okay yeah they had i saw one at uh logan hardware a couple years ago very expensive machine i think i think they're mm. I think all the Stern pins are fairly expensive. Something like something crazy like that. But uh, at any rate, it's possible Dennis had a hand in curveball, but but I'm not sure. So in that instance, yeah, they had me doing the artwork. By by this time, I was not the only artist doing graphics for the games. They had hired so many programmers. They had Terry Dorzaff, who typically did you know pins and cabinets. He did a game for Neil Bernstein, who had done Cubert's Cubes, you know, the Cubert sequel. Uh, it was a game called Nightmare, which I think is a completed game. And you can maybe find it. I think you can find at least it on YouTube. It might be on MAME. I'm not, not sure. And there was another guy named Dave Faust who had worked on... Um, he had been doing support artwork, but he had done uh, some of the port work on Us versus Them. And he was, I think, tapped to do a game. But anyway, they had me do the baseball game. Again, since we didn't have captured technology, I shot Polaroids of Sam Russo of Three Stooges. He was my ball player. Mm-hmm. So he did all the poses for everyone, the, the batters, the runners, the pitchers, uh, the base throwers. We set up out in the factory, and you know, it's a joke to think about the uh, the location photography for this, how, where it was done in, in the damn factory, like on a loading dock. But I shot all these Polaroids. I still have a big pile of Polaroids because I tend not to throw <laughs> stuff away. So Sam, Sam was the model for the baseball player. And, uh, you know, I don't remember too much about the gameplay. I saw it a few years ago at uh, Terry Minix, one of his, uh, his basement game parties. And he had it on his multiplay machine, but the controls were not good for the <laughs> game right. on that board. So you really couldn't play it. Um, have you guys had the experience of actually playing it? 
I have not, and a quick look on nope. Orcade.com shows that nobody has it. Nobody has it. Okay. <laughs> wow. At least nobody bothered to submit it to Orcade.com. So. Yeah. I'll have to see if it's in MAME. I'm sure it probably is. Oh, I'm is. sure it is. There, is. there are screen caps of the game out there. So Yeah, yeah well, like I say Terry had it on his board. So, uh, yeah, it's out there. I've, I've seen videos on YouTube of it playing, going through the whole thing. But it was kind of hard to get the sense of how you actually played it. The main thing I remember from that was um, there's a, like a scoreboard in the background. And there's like a ticker tape type, you know? That's probably not the word I want, but you know what I mean. Moving moving yeah. type. Running across with all, all these wisecracks and stuff. And go team and, you know, all that kind of business. And I think the credits for the uh, the contributors to the game are on that too. Uh, by this time, they had given up on the secrecy angle. Uh, supposedly earlier on, they wanted think everything to be a secret because they were worried about other companies stealing away you know, our talent. I don't think that ever sure. happened. I don't think that ever happened. And it was a pointless exercise because all there's all this development in Chicago, right? There's Gottlieb, there's Midway, there's Stern, there's Williams. I'm leaving someone out. Rockola. Rockola, right. Uh, and probably a few others. A very small, a pool of talent in this major area. People moving out all the time. We poach people from Midway, Rockola. <laughs> all the time and you know maybe they did too so it, it was ridiculous but so they had given up on that and we got credit in this uh little scroll line and they used something similar like that in arena now, have you seen arena over the galloping ghost yes i have seen that and i gave it i've given it a few plays okay uh that was program and designed by a guy named fred darmstadt and uh completely finished went out and tested and they decided not to build it and uh it was another game that went through a number of names. And then when Red Bull TV did this documentary last year with the Ghost, they uh, wanted that to be a prototype game that was going to come to development. And Doc had come across, he had been given the uh, the chips from a guy named Dave Bonecutter, who was one of our hardware designers, who, real young guy, you know, well, back in the 80s, real young guy, like right out of high school, and um, kind of a self-taught electrical engineer. And he had subsequently moved to Las Vegas. He'd been doing gambling machines ever since. And he had these chips up in his attic for like 30 years. Can you imagine that? 30 years in a Las Vegas <laughs> attic. And somehow they survived. Oh, he gave the chips to Doc, and you know they put them onto an old the standard golly board and got this damn game to work. Except it doesn't have any sounds, <laughs> uh, which is too bad. But uh, I love that game. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> well, uh, it's a lot like Tempest in a way. Uh, it, I mean, it, it shares some similarity with it, but You're running it's, around uh, the perimeter it's, 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 it's a good game. Yeah, it's a good game. Yeah, yeah. I can't get too far. I get to, into like the purple screen, and I'm soon <laughs> I have a uh, from a couple of years ago a picture of um, of Eugene Jarvis. Uh, losing his last life <laughs> on Defender, and he was only that was playing one of the best like... time pictures I've ever seen. Oh gosh, yes, he's he had only played for like three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be me. I I think with Cubert, I can get maybe oh in the thirties, oh, like where you're turning. I think where you're toggling stuff, where you're toggling mm-hmm. the tops, and you know at that point, forget it. Crawl, I <laughs> crawl. I'm lucky to get past the. Uh, if I can get through the swamp, it's amazing, and then I'll die in the next one. And Mad Planets, man. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. 
I maybe have gotten through the first wave on that maybe once or something. Yeah, I'm not so good at those games. I'm more of a, a board game guy. <laughs> <laughs> I tried getting into Dungeons & Dragons. I just couldn't figure it out. I remember back in the 80s, uh, TSR Hobbies actually got the rights to do an Indiana Jones uh, role-playing game, and I and I, I bought that and a couple of the uh, the modules for it, and I'm just like looking at the rules, and I'm like, I can't figure this out. So I never really got into any of that. Yeah, I think the closest I've ever gotten into role playing games was uh, my like eight year addiction to World of Warcraft. Oh, okay. so. yeah. and that's not really role playing. You know, it's uh, no, no, it isn't. But that is the closest I've gotten to it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's funny. Like D and D, I'm sitting here and I got a pile. If I pile them all on top of each other, it'd be over a foot tall of these hard mound books with all the various rules or plane aids and stuff. And um, and I can work my way through and r- run a campaign. Uh, I certainly can play a character and all that. But I'm incapable of, like, doing my taxes. <laughs> you, you know. So uh, basic paperwork and stuff like that just bores me to tears, you know. And uh, Oh, yeah. The stuff that was as equally as boring, if you have a different attitude, yeah, it's no problem. I eat it up, you know. <laughs> You ever seen that, uh, oh, we'll call it a meme? It, anyway, it's a picture going on Facebook. War gamers sent, typically send it to each other. And it's a series of like four or six photographs and uh, of game players. You know, here's what my wife thinks I'm doing. And he's like throwing money down the toilet. And uh, <laughs> here's what my friends think I'm doing. And, you know, he's playing like Risk or something like that. Or yes. Monopoly. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it goes on and on like that. But the last one is like, here's what I'm really doing. It's a guy sitting at a table with all these <laughs> rules. <laughs> and this puzzled expression on his face, going through all these pages of rules and stuff. That, that's what more gaming is. <laughs> I remember I actually walked into uh, one of the, uh, a store that sold like war gaming stuff. And they have like compasses and protractors and and all these different things to like measure distances and stuff and i'm like yeah i i stopped doing math in high school if i didn't have to so (laughs) yeah well i'm a member of the uh midwest chapter of the hmgs historical miniature gaming society and they have a their annual event is in april now it's up it's out in lombard so that's pretty convenient for me but it's an amazing site they're a mob of guys, and it's 95% male, of course. Um, <laughs> just exactly what you would expect, the kind of guys you would expect to be at something like this. It completely game. I mean, there's nothing, there can be nothing, I think, nerdier than this. And, and I'm one of those guys, you know, absolutely. Um, okay, fine. Before I started uh, joining on this call with you guys, my wife said, oh, you're going to go do, do your little nerd interview now? Okay, fine. Yeah. If Jeff says it, fine. Yeah, <laughs> but it's true. And, and so I I run two events every year. They're 25 millimeter. One's a Roman gladiators, and the other is a chariot race. Tremendously popular, the chariot races. Very popular. It's, you know, it's a 10-foot-long setup. 25 millimeter chariots. Uh, the carts separate from the horses. You can separate the horses from the rest of the team if they get killed by the other racers, which happens pretty frequently, actually. And so I've been working on building the stadium, the Colosseum, the vast Colosseum. Wow. And my stuff is nothing compared to some of the displays you'll see there. 
where these people, they take up all this table space. They got all these chunks of terrain that they've hand-built castles. There's this one legendary guy named Duke who has like this enormous Alamo, Siege of the Alamo game. <laughs> it must be <laughs> 10 feet by 20 feet. Just amazing. Uh, a lot of these guys are into Napoleonics and World War II stuff and Civil War. Those are like <laughs> the big three eras. There's a podcast uh, that I listen to called uh, James Bond Radio. In the last episode they did, they were talking about the movie The Living Daylights, which was the first Timothy Dalton one. And in that movie, uh, Joe Don Baker plays, yes, Mitchell, <laughs> oh, plays no. the, the bad guy. And, uh, one of the bad guys. And at the and he's like this uh, this American arms dealer. And in his compound, he's got all of these little war games set up, reenacting all the different battles and stuff. So <laughs> it's exactly what this convention is like. It's great. I mean, <laughs> if you like this stuff, it's great. I think WGN or WLS TV came out this year. I didn't see the segment, but someone said, yeah, they were just like, you could tell the woman was like laughing at it or trying to not to laugh. Because it's, it's so ridiculous. But that it's what it is. It is ridiculous. But if that's your hobby, I mean, it's it's great. It's so fun. <laughs> but yeah, and how nerdy can you get? For, uh, for Sean's uh, edification, uh, that wasn't uh, Joe Don Baker's only uh, involvement with the 007 series. Oh, he boy. appeared later in two of the Pierce Brosnan movies uh, actually as a totally different character and good guy. So... Uh, yeah, so Joe Don Baker was in three different Bond movies portraying two different characters. Um, just a little mystery science theater joke between me and Sean here. Okay, before we cl uh, close out here, there's a couple of things that uh, in uh, the research that Sean, I mean, we did. Um, <laughs> that, that we'd, uh, we'd like there's to, a uh, reason Jim's doing most of the talking. Yeah. Um, first of all, you've been involved with some uh, some books here. Cook's Guide to Chicago, The Train to Christmas Town. How the Turtle Got Its Shell, and one you just released recently. I bring this up because you were talking about the war games. What was the name of the the book that you just recently released? Soldier, Squire, Spy? That's the one, yes. Or is it Squire, yes. Soldier, Spy? Uh, it's the biography of uh, Colonel John Brown of Pittsfield, Massachusetts. That's right, that's he right. He was a was revolutionary soldier. Years ago, I... I read a bio, uh, biography of Ethan Allen of the Green Mountain Boys, and... Um, I thought he was with furniture stores. Yeah, yeah. That, that, was, that was later, <laughs> the post-war years. And uh, anyway, in the course of reading this amazing story of this amazing character, I me and a friend, we actually wrote a uh, screenplay based on his exploits. And that's where I first discovered the story of Colonel John Brown, who typically back then was known as Major Brown. But uh, the guy just had an amazing story. All the, the stuff that he did... He was like America's first spy in the Revolution, in the employ of Sam Adams. And he was sent on a mission up to Canada to check things out. And uh, he was one of the originators. And there were a number of people who thought of this at the same time. But uh, seizing Fort Ticonderoga when hostilities broke out, which is exactly what they did. He became known as the brave accuser of Benedict Arnold. He hated Benedict Arnold, as a lot of these guys did. Arnold was an amazing character himself, a mm -hmm. uh, brilliant general, extremely courageous and a great tactician, but he just was an asshole, and he rubbed people the wrong way. So his peers typically hated him. His superiors liked him because he was kind of a kiss-ass. Uh, <laughs> and his, sol his soldiers under him, they loved him too because he was 
very courageous, and you know he would lead him into battle and stuff. The man just knew, knew no fear. But anyway, Brown early on thought this guy was going to be a traitor, and he predicted this years in advance. Uh, even published pamphlets about it and um, got a lot of abuse and disdain for it. But of course, he ended up being right. So anyway, no one had written a, a book about this guy, so I thought, well, I, I'm going to do it. And I'm not a great writer by any means. And the book is maybe it's not such a great read because it, it was my goal to gather everything I could find about him. And that was not easy. And put it down into the record, gather it into one place. And um, man, thanks to uh, the beauty of the Internet and the resources out there, I was able to find some great stuff and things that weren't attribute, attributed, you know. Um, mm -hmm. properly and bring them all together into one volume. And so it's my hope that maybe someday a better writer will come along. And and you just better pray that nobody vandalized the Wikipedia entry. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, real quick, I just was uh, going to ask, uh, if anybody's interested in the book, where could they uh, where could they get this? Uh, they would have to go to Amazon because it, it's only available as an ebook at this point. Okay. Someday I hope to do... Link uh, in the show notes. Yeah, do a small print edition that'll have illustrations in it and so on. But the e-version does have maps and some public domain art that I collected. So it's yeah, I was I was waiting for that ooh to come out of Jim here. So it's uh, Squire <laughs> Soldier Spy, um, and I use my full name because it sounds very literary. You know, Jeffrey Philip <laughs> Lee, Jeffrey Philip Lee. So you, you can find that on Amazon. And I tell you, though, it's actually not even that easy because uh, of the title, you know, Squire, Soldier, Spy, Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, you know, stuff like that. It's, but John Brown, it's Colonel John Brown, not to be confused with John Brown, the abolitionist, which is not another problem. But uh, oh boy. that's where they can find it. If you want like a real deep historical read, hardcore, obscure history, that is your book, man. <laughs> That's going to be the next Hamilton, man. And uh, the reason uh, Sean said, uh, I was wondering if Jim was going to say, oh, uh, after you brought up maps, as I collect road maps for a hobby. Oh, so. uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I had fun with so, some of those maps, you know, they were... Uh, I love maps. Yeah, I do too. Always have. I got a whole file cabinet full of maps. I'd probably love to get, Ooh, them, get, get rid oh of them. Oh, boy. If, if you want to pick for one pick year, a couple them, years ago. A lot ago. of vintage maps, you can have them, man. Ooh, oh, oh. A couple of years ago, I volunteered uh, to help work the visitor center down here at uh, Goose Lake Prairie State Park, and the park superintendent uh, took me in back in one of the storerooms and showed me all of the maps of the park over time since the park was established and I was like a kid in the candy store. Oh, fun stuff. I think I like maps more than video games, but I don't think a, a, a map by map podcast would work very well. I saw an <laughs> atlas. I went down to Nashville uh, in early June and... Uh, Visited some friends, and other friends came into town, and one of the out-of-town visitors wanted to go to a bookshop, a particular bookshop, I think it's called Parnassus. It's owned by an author, and I couldn't tell you the author or anything, but I happened to see an atlas there, and it was like, and I, I'm sorry, Jim, I can't remember the name of the atlas, but it was like a modern atlas of the world, but using all these different modern icons and stuff. And hmm. so, so there was the map of video games on one of the pages. Ooh. And so I thought, well, I got to oh, look see. Neat. I got to look see if Cubert's in here. Now, you know, you've ever seen those maps of Ireland, for instance, where they have little labels for every surname, every Irish surname that's spread all over. 
<laughs> Ireland, throughout the counties and provinces. So that was kind of like the case with this. There was all these tiny little labels. So every like inlet or river or lake or town or county on this map, it was densely populated, was the name of some video game runner. And sooner or later, I did find Cuber. Oh, that sounds neat. Yeah. Unfortunately, I can't remember the name, but it's Parnassus is the name of the bookstore in Nashville, Tennessee. So if you were to contact mm. them and say, give them this vague description of a modern atlas of crazy modern things, it might still be on the shelf there. They could probably help you out. I think you'd get a kick and out of it. If you like vintage maps, the state of Illinois actually has all of their state roadmaps back to 1921 digitized and uh, online. Mm. And I spend a lot of time on that website. So, uh, wow. So uh, This has been Jim, Map Corner. Do you, do you happen to know if there's such maps of uh, Detroit, Michigan? That I couldn't tell you. Uh, I imagine somewhere, probably. Okay. I've actually been kind of interested in doing a, uh, at some point, doing a, a website with nothing but maps from uh, all the Illinois state parks uh, from over the years, but I wouldn't even know where to begin to get any old state park maps. But oh, well, but yeah, we could go bait. on and yeah, we could go on and on and on and on about that. Well, I could anyway because I, I love talking about maps. But uh, this is a video game podcast. You've probably done a <laughs> podcast on maps, so I take it. Well, I think I just did. <laughs> yeah, right. But, but yeah, this is dedicated. a video game podcast, which is why I want to ask a question specifically about another book that is attached to Jeff's name. Okay. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, there's one, Jim, that you failed to mention, and I have to ask about that. Oh, gee. That because yes. I, I oh, failed to mention it on purpose. Yeah, uh, just as a prelude to this, Jeff, uh, anybody who has heard at least two of our episodes will tell you uh, that uh, how mature the two of us 40-somethings are. For example, we talked about a video game called Tinkle Pit, and we had to edit out about 20 minutes of giggling on that one because apparently we're both nine years old. But uh, the uh, there's, a, there's a thing in the, in the game called a Tinkerball, and you use your Tinkerball to kill objects in the maze. Anyway, <clears throat> continue. And it's blue. But anyway, blue. <laughs> uh, the, the one thing that I saw attached to your name that I'd like to get a little bit more uh, info about, it's called Rhyming Rumpus Volume 1, Leaves of Ass. And uh, the illustrator's name is Drew Butts. Is that anybody you know? <laughs> well, <laughs> are you guys familiar with the lenticular printing? Yes. Sounds familiar. It's the kind of printing where there's like a plastic groove surface on something, and when you tilt it, the picture changes. Yes. Oh, yes, 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 yes. So that's mm-hmm. lenticular printing. And years ago, I had this brainstorm. I often have brainstorms, and usually nothing comes of it. And that in this case, nothing really did. But a friend and I wrote a bunch of poems, short poems. They're like four lines, and they all have to deal with people mooning other people. <laughs> so it's it's the nine-year-old in me you know and um so i thought these would be great cards because <laughs> there, there are two scenes there's the first scene the setup of the joke and there's the picture and if i had some near me hang on a minute i'll see if i can find okay Here's an example. So there's a picture of uh, like a couple archaeologists or tomb raiders, an Egyptian tomb, and there's a sarcophagus with a carved figure on it, and there's a um, an Egyptian holding a lantern, illuminating it, 
and one of the uh, Tomb Raiders has a pry bar, and he's prying open the, uh, the sarcophagus. And the text is, Behold the dread mummy of little King Tut. And then part B is essentially the same scene, but the coffin's been opened, and uh, one archaeologist is pointing and laughing, and the Egyptian is shocked, and the other guy's appalled. And there's the, well, the description, the next line of the poem says it all. Who was not wrapped so well that we can't see his butt. So his uh, his butt his dried up buttocks, his mummified buttocks are exposed. <laughs> uh, buttocks. Behold the dread mummy of little King Tut, who was not wrapped so well that we can't see his butt. And that's, they're all like this. So here's an, another historical one. Annie Oakley was a crack shot. Her aim most uncanny. We're not quite so good, but here's a shot of her fanny. So it's... <laughs> By the way, for our UK listeners, fanny means something different right, over here. Right, right. Uh, something a lot more sane. Right. So here's one my wife wrote, actually. Oh. And I uh, rendered it as like Dr. Frankenstein in his lab. So he's there, he's unveiling the monster. And the first part goes, I'll give you a hand if shove comes to push. And the second thing, he's op- he's lift up the sheet, and here's the monster, but it's missing. It's its ass is missing. And the line then is, but there's simply no way I'll part with my tush. So obviously, the tush has been parted with. And Igor's looking a little nervous. He's thinking uh, Dr. Frankenstein has eyes on his ass to add to the monster. <laughs> so anyway, I thought these would be great as cards, the lenticular printing. and um, But once I looked into the expense of printing it, it was crazy. And um, plus, I'm not so good with making stuff and then actually doing the wholesale. Yeah. You know, actually doing the selling. I'm terrible at that. So um, I eventually just published it as an ebook, And uh, I had a great time coming up with pseudonyms for the artist and the authors of all the poems. Because no one wanted to be identified. Until now, I, <laughs> I've been unmasked. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, so I've only done the one volume. I don't think it... I haven't really told anyone about it other than a couple of friends. One guy maybe bought it. I think maybe I've sold one. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'll sell two now. So, uh, yes. Well, we'll put a link in the show notes. So yeah, hopefully the, right, the rhyming bumpus. <laughs> yeah, it's for the nine-year-old boy and uh, the 40 or even 65-year-old man. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> And I can relate to that because I remember Midwest Gaming Classic this year. I was using the Tinkle Pit and I step out of the toilet and there you are. You said, oh, hey, Sean. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, my nine-year-old self. If my nine-year-old self knew that the guy who did Hubert would know me by name. <laughs> that nine-year-old would what? If, uh... Well, none of his friends would believe him. None of his friends thing. would. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they say he's lying again. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure he does. So, hey, Sean, are, Sean, are we going to have to give Jeff like a, a royalty name like we did uh, with Brian Cohen so that in case we talk about If we drop Jeff, his name we too don't much. don't get accused of. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we've been accused of being name droppers. Oh, what, so. so what's Brian's royalty name? King Henry VIII. King Henry VIII. Oh. Yeah. So uh, we'll have to give you, we'll have to give Jeff sort of a uh, Revolutionary War name, I hmm. think. How about uh, King George III? Mm. Oh, there we go. King George III. Okay. And once again, with the Hamilton thing going there, that's all the rage right now. Yeah, so. All right. Okay. There we are. 
So it has to be royalty. Is that is that what you're saying? Well, I guess it doesn't have to be royalty, but but just to keep things like kind just of to keep even. the theme going. Yeah, 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 cool. Yeah. So King George the Third, I like it. So I guess with that, uh, <laughs> we said we probably wouldn't go much longer than nine. Good years Lord. Quarter to ten. Yeah. Well, we kind of kind of segue talking. I think with that. Uh, once again, uh, we'd like what to What a way to end. Yeah, no kidding. Thank you for uh, talking to us tonight, Jeff, or King George III. And um, you're welcome to uh, come back to the show anytime if you have anything to promote. Cool. Jim, thank you. Appreciate it. Sean, thank you very much. Uh, took us a long time to get this together, but uh, I hope your it, listeners it happened. find it of uh, some interest. And uh, if not, they can... Uh, Bite me. <laughs> move, move over to one of your other podcasts. So, <laughs> how many? How many? Really you we'll send them to Victor and Sean. See how they like that. Yeah. Or maybe we'll just have to start this week in potatoes again. Yeah. Oh God, that again. And, and then I've got anyway. my uh, USGS Topo Map Quad by Quad podcast. Okay. Cool. Well, like I say, I got a whole <laughs> I got a whole file cabinet full of road maps. So, oh gosh, uh, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to do something about that. If, you know, yeah, and my wife, be over my in five wife minutes, would be Jeff. thrilled if you came by and <laughs> took them. So seriously, Jim, you want maps? Come over here sometime, and uh, I'll be there. <laughs> when and where? That's <laughs> otherwise. Otherwise, you're gonna get used as wrapping paper. Well, that we can't allow that to happen. No, you can't allow that to happen. So you're you're on notice. Notice. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So. Thank you again, and we take it back to the uh, back to the Pie Factory Studios, where I guess we're going to close the show off in the studio. All right, guys. So there it was, our little conversation with Jeff Lee, talking about Qbert and other games and other non-games that Jeff has worked on. If you would like a transcript of that interview, then all you have to do is listen to it and write everything down. In the meantime, we'd like to thank the following for their monetary support of Pie Factory Podcast. Thank you to Michael D'Angelo, Kyle Etter, Rory Coleman, Art Guglielmo, Greg Polander, Underground Retrocade, Richard Valdez, Keith Sheehan, Nate Lockhart, and Jonas Rulo. If you would like to join that elite list, stay listening and our booth announcer will tell you how you can do that. And we also extend a huge thanks to our friend Steve Tui at Tuiville.com. That's T-O-U-H-Y-V-I-L-L-E.com. You can listen to Pie Factory Podcast over at Tuiville.com, among other shows that uh, are quite entertaining. And uh, what else do I have to say? Thank you, Steve, for your support. And, of course, a huge, huge undying thank you to Jeff Lee for his patience in dealing with Jim and me for the past two years, trying to get him to sit down for an interview. Uh, the three of us could just never get our schedules together on time. So we finally did it. Finally did it. And uh, Jeff has been a very patient guy trying to get the audio over to us. Not going to get into the details, but let's just say it wasn't the easiest thing in the world on his end, but he stuck through it. Um, I said this to Jeff privately, but I'm going to announce this publicly. Um, Jeff, if you're listening, and even if you're not listening, Jim and I owe you big time. Remember, we're going to take you out to dinner or drinks or something sometime. So let us know. Let us know when you, when you want to do that. So what else do I have to say? Next episode, episode number 61, we're going to be talking about Crawl and Qbert. Gee, I wonder why. So thank you for tuning in. Uh, we will be talking to you in a couple of weeks. Tasty Cakes. This episode of the Pie Factory podcast was edited and produced by Hyde St. Pierre. 
Opening and closing theme is the Happy L composed by Sean Courtney. Love theme from Adenda and Arata was composed by Jim Goble. Follow the Pie Factory podcast online via Facebook, on Twitter at Pie Factory PFP, or on piefactorypodcast.com. Support the show at patreon.com slash piefactorypodcast. But, um, oh, shit. Oh, 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 oh. We'll probably cut that out. Yeah. Oh, hold on, Charlie. Attacked by a dog or something? No, a horse, I think. Oh, a horse named Charlie. Oh, ah, that hurt. What was that? Oh, crap. Well, that certainly is a dramatic ending. I think you ought to just. Oh, that hurt. My leg just cramped up for no freaking reason, and that hurt like a summon a botch. Oh, it will do that. Man, that's going to get us another award. Oh, jeez. Ah, you, you'll have to cut it. it short with no explanation, though. Just yeah. <laughs> a couple of years ago, I did a. I was doing. I was doing a sponsored bike ride. I was doing the hundred mile routes, and I got to the point where I could see the 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 end point of the ride. And then, of course, right there and then, my leg decided to cramp up. Mm. <laughs> and so I was like, I was off of my bicycle for like 10 minutes until that thing got under control. <laughs> wow. Well, I haven't had that in my Ow. leg. My, my foot used to cramp up like that, like in the arch of the foot. And Oh, yeah, no, I get, I get that, yeah, too. Yeah, really damn painful. So, uh, yeah, I got, well, <laughs> I had to have my left foot totally rebuilt a few years ago because I was born with club foot. They fixed it when I was a baby, but then... I was walking around at work one day, and all of a sudden, it just started hurting for no reason, and just was hurting for months. So, oh my gosh! Had to have my foot rebuilt. Yeah, that was fun. Actually, they put you under, and then you have people waiting on you, hand and foot. Pardon the pun. Yeah. For uh, four weeks afterwards, and uh, it was not too bad. So. Well, it's tough because <laughs> you know you depend on those feet to get you around everywhere, and all your weight's on it. So. Uh, that's that's true. It makes going to the tinkle pit a little yeah. hard. But, oh, absolutely. Uh, See?